May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear people and family of God, last week our brother Eric brought to our attention the truth that we as Christians, walking according to the Holy Spirit, regard no one according to the flesh. And in the spirit of love and of mercy, we forgive one another in reconciliation toward, one another, toward each other, just as we all have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus our Lord by the forgiveness that we find in him. And a very big amen to that revelation that we needed to hear. This week, as it turns out, on the very heels of that meditation on how we regard each other as spiritual people that are dearly loved by God, the Holy Spirit would lead us to consider another text from Paul, where he boasts very intentionally in his letter to the Philippians, outlining the very picture of that regard for the flesh. And he shows us that if he wanted to, and he had not been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, he could even place his whole confidence in, in the grand and worldly status that he had, his external and very visible qualities. Paul exclaims in Philippians chapter 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Picture this man. Picture him standing in nobility, loved by every good Jew, a champion for that which is good, elite in lineage, his birthright, and he's set apart for the cause of God, a hero of heroes the image of perfection and the idol of everyone who looks up to the goodness of mankind, someone with whom one cannot compare himself or herself, since this noble one stands high above all others in good deeds and moral character, someone with whom, by the standard of the law given to Moses, no one can find any fault. This man is blameless by his own account. This man is not Jesus, it's not Moses either. And I suppose it comes close maybe to being Job, but not quite. That man is indeed Paul himself. A man representing and outshining all of the other Pharisees in his company. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee. One of those zealous and law-abiding righteous individuals that we perceive. One who does nothing wrong to anyone. And um, that is nothing you can put him, you can pin him down on. Um, 
And of all these Pharisees, just like Paul, all these Pharisees, just like Paul, would do anything to achieve salvation from God. They would go to any length. They would make the biggest sacrifice that could be conceived of, and they would champion God's cause over all the earth if God would will it to be so. These men were militant. They would do anything for God, anything. That is, that they could both understand and approve of. To achieve eternal life in the world to come, they would even follow the coming Jewish Messiah that they were looking forward to, to the ends of the world. And they would follow him to the utmost, the most minute detail, whatever it would take, whatever the cost, whatever extreme might be necessary, until he would come and they were free. The reward for their hard-earned efforts and their strict adherence to the written word of Adonai would not be denied them. Could you compare yourself to their zeal for God? If you measured your urgency to see all that God wants be done, could you stand toe-to-toe with these sold-out individuals? Like Paul said, he, like all of these men, and much of them, maybe not all of them were completely strict, but he, at least, says he was blameless as far as his righteousness stood in contrast to the holy law, this coming from the apostle. And what greater standard was there than that? If anyone would make it to heaven, surely it was he, or at least one of his cohorts. They would receive their just reward. They would get their dues. And the rest, the rest of the people, apparently they'd have to settle somehow. To fall on the mercy of Almighty God, if he would somehow deem it justifiable, But how could a holy and perfect God ever allow any sin to go unpunished? How could these men, these other men, ever stand unashamed before the magnificence of the Lord God Almighty in these Pharisees' eyes? The holy God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand before him? Impossible. Unless they would become like the Pharisees blameless from all perceived immorality. What hope did these poor people have? What hope at all? Unless, unless somehow and in some way, what Jesus said about the Pharisees' righteousness was true. And it is true. But how could anyone argue with a Job? How could anyone argue with the very people who claim to stand in the right? When Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, was he for real? Who could ever surpass the Pharisees' righteousness since, as Paul indicated, they were blameless? As to the righteousness found in the holy law, and what's more, How could Jesus legally ever find fault with them? Answer, Jesus can, and he will rebuke them, just the same way that he dealt with the righteousness of Job and rebuked the man in a word. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. The Lord further said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, he who argues with God? Let him answer it. And he said, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And Job's response Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Thus ends the reading. Standing next to the Lord God Almighty, Job came to terms with his true nature and status and repented as the unworthy man that he was. We see this blameless man, seemingly righteous before all men, who wasn't able to be reproved by anyone. We see him repenting in humility before the wonderful, gracious majesty of God. So what is the standard by which all men are to be judged? Is it just a list of laws given from a holy God? Well, yes. Then if, it, if that's the case, then do them. But do not boast before God. When one who is greater than the law is present, all must be silent. The giver of the holy law now stands in our midst, and all is laid bare and open before his eyes. Just as Jesus said, so we can be sure, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And lest we think that we can walk away from the law or diminish it in any way, Jesus binds us to it. And everyone, to every nook and cranny, even the Pharisee with his rigid adherence to the law, and he even says point blank that the Pharisees are not entering heaven unless they gain a better righteousness than they already have. But they're blameless. What can get better? If by the written code of Sinai, the law, they are found righteous by themselves and by all men, a higher standard, a surpassing righteousness, is left for them to achieve in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is this standard high above them, too far out of their reach, too far above them. Indeed, this righteousness is impossible for them, but not for God. And it remains as absolutely necessary for all mankind's salvation. You see, the spiritual law encoded at Sinai encapsulated and still reflects the perfect and holy good righteousness of God, which only Jesus could ever demonstrate. Jesus' righteousness is the standard by which all men enter the kingdom, fulfilling all of the spiritual law of Sinai in its truest and purest sense. His righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Jesus was pointing to himself. He alone is able to uphold the moral law to accomplish it since he stands alone as the one greater than the law, the holy law, which he himself gave to us poor and miserable sinners. If the law was given at Sinai, if the law given at Sinai was but a taste of the spiritual law, then the holy majesty of Jesus, the radiance of all his goodness, is the fullness of that law, the exhausting of all its enumerations. Jesus manifests the very righteousness of God, and it's beyond, above, and greater than that deemed adequate by the Pharisees. Jesus clarifies and even brings the law of Moses to a sharper point. That's why he can give us the the, um, parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's why he can declare, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he gets at the finer point of the law, the thing that's not written. And everyone who is angry with his brother, angry, really? And I'm liable to judgment for that? That is the holiness and the goodness of our Lord. Kindness, compassion, mercy, goodness, gentleness, no anger, no fault-finding, just grace and pure truth. Such purity is the work of God alone and the fruits of God alone, to which no man may dare lay a claim. And these pure and true teachings... These pure and true things are the essence of the spirit of the law, the attitude and the character of the law. And yet, this is the standard which God has called us, which we all fall short of, creatures of the world and of our own evils. Our goodness doesn't hold a candle to God's. Indeed, even our goodness exists in corruption. And it's impure. We are all held to the good spirit of the law and not just to the cold, rigid following of its code. Our heads bowed low. We must agree with the disciples. Then who can be saved? If even great men cannot attain to the spirit of the law, to the true righteousness of Jesus, who then may be found righteous in God's sight? Who can be found righteous and be saved? Here now, the word of the cross, that even in our great sin, Christ is an even greater Savior. For the love of God poured out to us was greater than our weakness. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus upheld the spiritual law in our place and now gives us his own righteousness, taking our sin away from us and bearing it on the cross. And by his stripes, we are healed. By the grace of God and through the gift of faith in his name, and our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We now look to Jesus the giver of righteousness, for a righteous standing before God that is perfect and far exceeding that of the Pharisees. Paul said it in the rest of the passage 
that was in the beginning of my long-winded sermon, the best. He said, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's true. God won't let any sin go unpunished. So he has extinguished all of his wrath and righteous judgment on his one and only Son. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Jesus' work of redemption at the cross is that means that Paul speaks of by which we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. By the blood of Jesus, we, you, are forgiven. You have been baptized into his death and are fed by his body and blood for the forgiveness of all your sins, the very body and blood that we will take part in today at the altar. May we ever increase in our common faith at the hearing of that gospel proclamation by the Spirit's power and learn to live in this newness of life that is by faith, living for each other and the good of our neighbor. And in that, so offer up our worship by faith alone. In step with the Holy Spirit and in the true faith, we walk in newness of life forgiven, and being forgiven, both now and forever. Amen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.